0: Good morning. morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us once again. What an awesome morning this is. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Nehemiah. You guys thought I was the only one that cried around here, huh? All of us do. We uh, are at times overwhelmed by the amazing love of God. And and, uh, as... uh, Pastor Scott, our executive pastor there, uh, shared, we want everybody to experience that. It it, it can be pretty overwhelming at times. And so how appropriate this morning, as we talk about motivation, there's nothing that will motivate you more than to uh, have his love go from concept to reality within your heart and overwhelm you. Uh, we got a great study here. And uh, it's uh, Nehemiah chapter 2 is where we are, and we'll be looking at verses 10 through 20. Rebuild is our current teaching series, and we're talking about motivation. Some of you maybe have memorized this verse. It's, it's a really a favorite verse of mine. It's, uh, it's 1 Peter 1, 1.8, and the, uh, Peter, the Apostle Peter is writing to second-generation Christians, and this is what he says, "'Though you have not seen him.'" And he had seen Jesus. He had encountered the risen Lord and Savior. In fact, he writes in his writing also that we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And he was just blown away. His heart was captivated by by Jesus and who he is and that he died for him. And he was just amazed. But so he's writing a second-generation Christian. He says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. I love the, that verse. It's just uh, that though you haven't seen him, you love him, though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and there's something that happened as you encountered him in the spiritual realm that you'll, you'll never be the same. Unspeakable? You can't even put it into words. Even if Scott was up here, he couldn't even get a hold of his words. It's unspeakable, and it's glorious. It outweighs anything. It outweighs your circumstances, the people in your life, the negative people in your life, the things the breakdown. I got a call last night. It was about 9.30. I told my wife last night, I says, we're going to go to bed early tonight, but I need to make sure that I get a better night of sleep than what I've been getting. And about, 9, uh, about 9.30, we're going to go to bed about 9.45. That's early for us. But... Uh, I get a phone call from my son who is broken down over here on the freeway. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? But there is a joy. I mean, that's minor. I mean, we were able to work through it and get him, but, but there is a joy that regardless of whatever your plans might be, there is a joy that uh, transcends all of that. Unspeakable, glorious joy. So how do, you, how do you keep that joy in your heart? How do you keep your life full of zeal and fervor for the Lord? That's why it says in Romans twelve eighteen, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. How do you do that? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. And the reason why it's so important is because finding our deepest satisfaction in God is not a luxury, but a necessity for not only displaying accurately the greatness and the goodness of God, but to sustain us through the very painful and wearisome task of rebuilding our brokenness. We're all broken. And so as God rebuilds our brokenness, it can be somewhat wearisome and so how do, we, how do we keep, you know, stay the course? How do we keep going in the midst of the difficulties of our life? We need joy. We need that unspeakable and glorious joy. How do we do that? How do we keep that joy in our hearts? To follow Christ... It's not just an act of the will. It's not just a decision that you made, a card you signed, a, a tank, baptism tank you got dunked in, an aisle you walked. It's, it's more than that. It's more than a decision. It's more than an act of the will. It is an affection of the heart, a desire that exceeds all other desires. And uh, even, and you've heard me say this before, a lot of Christians don't understand this, but your morality can be very self-centered, and self-serving. Your morality can be motivated out of fear and pride. That's self-serving. It's about you. But there's a morality, there's a virtuous kind of behavior that is motivated by a heart that is smitten by the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is. That's not self-centered, that's God-centered morality. And it comes out of this unspeakable and glorious joy. Major difference between the two. And so that's where we're headed this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? We're going to dive into our study, and we're going to unpack this. How to stay motivated? How do I motivate others? Keep their hearts filled with this zeal and fervor for the Lord. Father God, we we run into your arms this morning. The riches of your love are, are more than enough. Nothing compares to your embrace. We love you. Teach us how we can keep our our emotional uh, tanks filled up with zeal and fervor for you, and then, and then help us to help others to do the same so that we can find our deepest satisfaction in you, regardless of what goes down in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to walk through the text again like we did last week. Uh, I would always encourage you to kind of read the text beforehand. Most of the time we'll read completely through it, but we'll just kind of walk through it step by step. You guys cool with that? I guess you don't have a choice, do you? Okay. So uh, how to stay motivated and motivate others. Let me bring you back to the background here. You guys know the background. If you haven't been with us in this study, it's just a phenomenal study. Israel has been defeated and scattered throughout the ancient world. And now over a century later, they have opportunity to return and rebuild. Nehemiah, a a Jewish cupbearer, a personal bodyguard for the king, king of Persia, hears that the rebuilding efforts aren't going so well, and it it breaks his heart. Um, He's in anguish. He weeps, he mourns, he fasts, and prays for about four months. While he's serving the king, the king notices he's sad. The king says, hey, what's going on? And so he has opportunity to share with the king. And lo and behold, what happens? The king is going to support all of his efforts, let him go back home and do the rebuilding process, and, and pay for that to be done. Pretty amazing. Nehemiah receives permission from the king to return to assist the rebuilding efforts. And now we're in the, in the story. And these are his memoirs, so just keep that in mind. So we're now in the story. He's having, he's, he's arrived. Having arrived in Jerusalem, Nehemiah faces the immense task of staying motivated. I mean, have you ever looked at a mess before? Maybe the mess of your own life or the mess of somebody else's life and you're going, oh, oh, this is hopeless. Well, that's a little bit of what he's facing here. There's no way. There's no way we can put this back together again. Sometimes when you're doing some house cleaning, anybody out there, you look at your room or your house and you're going, oh my goodness, I don't know where to start. I'm just going to go to Starbucks and get something to drink and just hang out. Maybe it'll take care of itself. And so... Uh, so he's, he's arrived in, in Jerusalem. Nehemiah faces the immense task of staying motivated and motivating others to join with him in the rebuilding. And this is what's interesting about the story is that they attempted to rebuild two times earlier within the last 90 years, and they were unsuccessful. And now he's going to come in here, and they're going to rebuild it. In how many days? 52. 52. 52 days. That's pretty remarkable. And so when you look at the broken city of Jerusalem, it represents the broken lives of the people. They have not only been spiritually alienated, but they've been psychologically alienated, broken inside, and broken in their relationships with one another. So that's what happens, the rippling effect of our sin. When we're spiritually alienated from God, we become psychologically alienated, and then we become socially alienated, and then obviously the physical alienation with the brokenness of their walls and and that city in shambles. And so the broken city represents their broken lives, but this this is the city is the promised land. Remember the promise? Land of milk and honey? What is that a picture of in the Old Testament as it relates to the New Testament? It's the fullness of life that Jesus Christ came to give to us. Milk and honey represents milk strength, honey satisfaction. So the question would be, are you living in the middle of that fullness of life, strength and satisfaction that Christ came to give regardless of your circumstances? That's what God is wanting to restore to the people. More importantly, the city is just a byproduct of, 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 of something much deeper, which is their relationship with God. That's what God wants to do for us also as we read through this story. So look at verse 10. So now he's arrived in the city, but guess who's waiting for him? But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. I mean, as soon as he steps on the ground there, he's arrived, and what, do they, what does he have? He's got bullies, people that are like, hey, we don't want you here. You're going to seek the welfare of these people? No way. Here's the first point. If you're going to overcome, uh, if you want to have motivation in your life, overcome those days when things kind of get you down and you're flatline as it relates to uh, your spiritual zeal and fervor, you've got to Expect opposition. Expect opposition. How many have ever been driving and you get lost and find, you find yourself maybe in a in a neighborhood or a place where you're thinking, "Oh my goodness, if this was at nighttime and my car were to stall, this would be scary." Anybody ever have that experience before? Some of you live in that neighborhood and have lived in that neighborhood, and the only reason you'd ever go into that neighborhood is to evangelize. And to be a part of the solution in that. And this is that neighborhood that he's talking about here. These bullies show up. How many have ever been bullied before? uh, I've I've been bullied a number of times in my life. One time, uh, my cousin Steve smarted off to some bullies. And they came over and punched me in the face. (laughs) And then again, my cousin Steve smarted off to some bullies. And they threatened our lives. And let me tell you something, if you ever have your life threatened, I've had my life threatened uh, uh, about three, four times now, and is that you just don't walk outside, skippity doodah, dah skippity-day. You're looking around every corner. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah. is the coast clear here? I mean, you've got, you're on your guard. That's a little bit of what Nehemiah, he shows up, and these guys are saying, hey, these are bullies. These are bullies that have come in. And the Bible says that we have bullies. You thought it was going to be easy when you committed your life to Jesus, didn't you? Didn't, didn't the pastor tell you that, ooh, wonderful, everything's going to be perfect, God's going to take care of all your problems? It's the most difficult life you've ever entered into. It's because you've got three enemies. Notice uh, this. You've got three bullies that pick on you, so to speak. Sinful nature, Satan, society, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, makes that clear. John ten ten. the first part of that, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. You have a target on you. He despises you. He hates you. You have an adversary. You switch teams on him. Immediately when you switch teams, there's only two teams. You're either on God's team or you're on his team. And when you put your faith in Jesus, you switch teams on him, and he doesn't like that. He's after you. There's a target on you. Besides the fact that we have our society that's very adversarial, the values of our society, and then our own sinful nature. We want to live, you know, to promote ourselves. And I I read a quote yesterday. The guy said, you're not ready to be a Christian until you are prepared for some people to despise what you find most precious. That's going to happen. If you're following Jesus, you want to build into someone else's life? You want to help them out? By the way, I don't know how many times I've done this. I've counseled and helped people to say, hey, you know what? This guy is just dragging you down. You need to leave him and have that guy want to come after me. Because I'm messing up a really good thing that they can manipulate and control this person. And this person is trying to get healthy and have boundaries and be able to say no. But this person, the, the other person, the perpetrator doesn't like that. By the way, you start helping people get healthy and the people that are around them that had kept them in that unhealthy place, they don't like that. That's what these guys are. These guys are perpetrators. These guys are destructive. They show up on the scene. Oh, you seek the welfare of the city? We don't like that. But out. And that's what's interesting about what we do here is that we help people to be set free. Sometimes that mean, that might mean the group of people that they hang out with that are very adversarial. They don't, they're not looking after their best interest. And you have to learn to make that distinction sometimes and see that those, those codependent relationships can be very unhealthy. We're going to do it in love and with kindness, but this is what's going down with him. So you've got to expect opposition. So if you're really living for Jesus... The uh, wrong question is: Is what am I doing wrong? If you're ha- expecting opposition, it's what am I doing right? You're going to expect opposition if you're following him. You're going ex- you better expect opposition. You're going to have opposition. Here's the next one. Look at verse eleven. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. What did he do? He took a break. Three days, little three day, little sabbatical. That's pretty smart, actually. That's just that's what he does. Here's your next thing. If you want to stay motivated and help others to be motivated, build margin into your life. That's, what, that's the next thing we see. So he has this opposition, and then we, t- we see some margin in his life. Uh, Philippians 4, 6, it says, Don't be anxious about anything, but, with, but within everything, with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And he talks about the peace of God. So don't let life jerk you around, literally, is what it's saying. Psalm 46.10, you familiar with that? It says, be still and know what? That I am God. Uh, I love the message. It says, step out of the traffic and take a long loving look at me, your high God. God. So when was the last time you stepped out of the traffic of life and took a long, loving look at God? I hope this morning during our worship time, I hope right now as we study God's Word, you're taking a long, loving look at Him because that's what you need more than anything. You need to know that He's for you and not against you. You need to experience His love that chases away the fears. That's why it says, Be still and know that I am God. Exodus 29-10 through 10 talks about the, the Sabbath. Ecclesiastes 4, 6, it says, Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Margin is the space between my load and my limit. That's what margin is. It's it's the space between my load and my limit. So I have a half-ton pickup truck, so I wouldn't have margin. I wouldn't be taking care of it if I tried to load up uh, one ton on the back end of it. That would just probably flatten it out and destroy it. But that's what we—that's how we try to live our lives. So margin is the space between my load and my limit. It's having breath at the top of the staircase. It's having money at the end of the month. It's having energy for your family at the end of the day. It's having sanity at the end of raising kids. It's... Uh, it's the distance between you and the edge of the cliff. And for years, I, I, didn't, I could not identify the edge. I didn't know how close I was to the edge. It only took one little thing or person to set me off. Do you find yourself from time to time just all of a sudden something sets you off? You kind of go off on someone. You have that meltdown or blow up. It's because you're too close to the edge. You don't have enough margin in your life. There's the other factors too. But you don't have enough margin in your life. I notice that when I'm really rested, I can handle a lot of the stressful things. But man, when, when things start building up little by little, I don't have that ability to, to manage that. Would you guys agree with that? How many have found that to be true? Okay. And so that's why he, has, he takes three days off, three days of vacation. You think, man, we've got to get this job done. Why are you taking three days off? It's because he's pacing himself. You're going to see him doing a lot of praying and a lot of, you know, just kind of resting and pacing himself as he works through this. Benefits of margin is peace of mind, better health, more productivity, stronger relationships. Why do you think we don't have margin in our life? Why do you think, that, uh, why do you think people struggle with margin? Turn to the person next to you real quick and see if they know the answer to that. Why do we struggle with margin in our life? Why are we so driven? That would answer that question. If you can answer that question, you're going to begin to start, start taking steps to your life to have a greater life of productivity. Real quick, do that. Okay, here's the answer. Hopefully you came up with some good answers. Here's my answer, and this is what I've done for years. I still tend to do this, not, so much as, not as bad as I used to. But uh, I tend to work for my identity rather than from my identity. That's our problem, is we're working for our identity, so therefore we're driven. We're trying to fill a void that ultimately Jesus has already filled and so when I, when I begin to work from my identity, who I am in Jesus, I can say no to these things. What drives me to say no is I'm maybe too codependent or I'm driven to achievement rather than to already see the achievement of Jesus on the cross. I'm not living in the reality of that. I'm living for some other achievement or accolade or accomplishment. I understand we all work jobs where they kind of slave drive us a lot, put in a lot of hours. But we've got to, even in that, we have to say no. I mean, I learned to say no when I was working on the fire department. It was, it was pretty attractive to work that one 24-hour shift a month because I'd make 500 bucks for that one shift. 500 bucks. oh my goodness, that's a little extra margin for the money, for the account. And so, but, but it was driving me hard and uh, neglecting my own physical well-being. It was wearing me out. There was a number of other issues, so I had to look at that and go, hey, what, what's most important here? And so, so we tend to, whether it be parenting or marriage, or job, or physical conditioning. We're driven to do that to the extent that we do that in an unhealthy way because we are doing that for our identity rather than from our identity. You guys tracking with me? Make sense? So, so you, have to, you start from completeness in Jesus, and then out of that, then you begin to do life. And then you can say no and yes to the people, And things that tend to intrude upon your life so that you can live for his glory. Here's the next one. Now, verses 12 through 16, he's going to make an assessment here. Let's read through this. So now, then I arose in the night, and I had a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate. So he's even doing this at night. He just doesn't want people to see him. He's just really investigating it. A little incognito here. And, and to the dragon spring. So to the valley gate, to the dragon screen, uh, spring, and to the dung gate. There's a good place. Where do you live? Dung gate. And I inspected, there's our key phrase, and I inspected, or some translations say examine, we'll go back to that. I inspected the walls in Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate into the King's Pool. So these are all like neighborhoods. It'd be like going out here to these different neighborhoods uh, Deer Valley, there's a Deer Valley, or where we live, Western Meadows, or. Whatever neighborhoods, I can't think of any right now, but there's all kinds of neighborhoods out here. And these are different neighborhoods that he's going into, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. So he just, it's just like a war zone, just shambles. Then I went up in the night by the valley. So there he is at night again. And inspected, there's our word, examined the wall and turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials and the rest who were to do the work. Stop there. So here's the next thing. So expect opposition, build margin into your life and then make an accurate uh, assessment. Face your brokenness. Face your brokenness. And so this accurate assessment we saw, uh, this word is uh, inspected or examining. It's a Hebrew word. It means uh, it is a medical term meaning to probe a wound to see the extent of the laceration or if a disease, to see the extent of the infection. So it just means to examine it. We're talking about our personal lives have you ever had someone, uh, you're talking to them and they're saying, hey, I didn't turn out so bad. You know, I didn't go to church like you went to, went to church, Ray, and I didn't read my Bible, praying, but I didn't turn out so bad. And you're thinking down deep in your heart, yes, you did. You just don't know it. <laughs> huh? Anybody ever say that? Ever, ever think that? Yeah. And, I, and I'm just thinking, you're jacked up and you don't even know it. Well, that's where most of us actually live because we're really good at medicating. We're all broken. All of us are. And that's what God specializes in is putting together, you know, as we give him the pieces of our life to bring about wholeness. It's amazing. And so when people say that to me, I just, I know that they're broken. I know that, and they just don't know it. Here's what I, uh, what I can tell when someone's really kind of learning that they're broken is that they have this attitude. In fact, the Dean shared this this morning uh, and I loved it because he said, I don't know where I'd be without Jesus. And I go, you're right on track, man. That is awesome. That is a good place to be. You're a candidate of his power and his strength. He's, he's healing you, man. I don't know where I would be without Jesus. I long for him. That's a good place to be. Now, if you're not there, you repent that you're not there, and you recognize, hey, there's some kind of masquerade party that I'm involved in here. There's some kind of masking that's going on. Because to be in touch with reality is to be in touch with your brokenness, as he examines here, and to be in touch with your neediness for Christ. And the more you're in touch with your brokenness, the more you you feel that you need him. And, and uh, we've talked about that. There's different ways of examining your brokenness. I won't, there's, I mean, I could spend a lot of time just looking at that just to help to blow the cover that you might have, thinking that you're not so so bad off. But facing brokenness is is painful, but denial is an affront to God's greatness and goodness to heal and to make us whole. Facing our brokenness is the first step to running into the arms of the only one who can heal and make us whole. I talked about examining our lives last week. I used the Lord's Prayer where it says, Forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. So those are times in my life as I'm praying and talking to God interacting with Him so He can reveal my own personal sins and the sins that have been committed against me. Another way that I examine my life is through my inordinate emotions and passions. We've talked about that. I examine my life also through the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Am I living in the reality of this promised land, milk and honey, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control, regardless of the circumstances in my life? Not so much. There are times I I don't. I'm not a nice guy to be around. And I'm missing out on what God has for me in the midst of that. That's what I look for. But here's, here's a couple of uh, ways that I, I also will look at my own life is that you look at the great commandment. You guys know what the great commandment is? Not the great commission, but the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So I'll look at that. That's a good kind of a way of examining your life. So let me ask you this. Do you love God so much that he dominates your solitude That when your mind is free to think about what it's free to think about, where does it go to? And it only makes sense that if he's as great and as good as the Bible says he is, why wouldn't you want to immediately go to him? But you're probably not living the reality of that, of who he is. You're missing the mark. It's called sin. So do you love God so much that he dominates your solitude to the point that you are content in all circumstances because you always have what you most want, and that's him. So that's, I don't, I'm not always there. So it shows my brokenness and how I tend to kind of do life my own way and medicate and follow and cope and and all of that because I'm really desperate for him. Here's another one is that do I love my neighbor as myself? What that means is that do I put the same amount of thought, emotion, action into seeking others' well-being as I would my own? Even to the point that if you had two co-workers, you and another co-worker were being considered for a promotion and the other one got the promotion rather than you, that you would rejoice with them as if you had gotten it. Do you do that? That's, that's what it's saying. Probably not so much. And yet what it's, the Bible says is that, man, when you, when you experience his love to the degree that you could, you will be a love philanthropist. Love will just overflow your life. So that's kind of how I often will look at my own life, and I have to really examine my own, my own brokenness and uh, see where I might be. Uh, and then we move into the kind of this, so once I kind of see, hey, I don't live there, God. I'm not anywhere close to where I'm experiencing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Verses 17 through 18, this is an awesome part right here because this is kind of like that, that quintessential uh, locker room Motivational, inspirational talk. I mean, you guys are familiar with that. You've seen it in a lot of the movies: *Return of the Titans*, *Braveheart*. Remember where he, Rudy? Yeah, Uh, we were soldiers. *Lord of the Rings* has multiple places where they're just kind of rallying the troops, and everybody's like, "Oh yeah, let's go!" That's what he's doing here in verses 17 through 18. I think that's what the 49ers did last weekend. The locker room. I mean, it certainly helped when the lights went out and, and. and it made the Ravens lose some momentum. But, but I'd seen the 49ers come back. And my team won that I was rooting for anyway. And, uh, but what was, it was interesting. I think that there was a locker room talk. And this is that locker room talk. Look at verses 17 through 18. So you're facing, you're facing your brokenness. So how do you kind of muster up the, the energy and to really get going? Listen to what he says. Then I said to them... You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision or shame. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build So they strengthened their hands for the good work. So that's like that quintessential locker room talk. Pretty amazing. Here's the next thing on your notes. Uh, Preach the gospel to yourself and others. So we, we see the gospel here. We have to do that to ourselves. What does that mean to preach the gospel to yourself? So expect opposition. Build margin into your life. Make an accurate assessment. Face your brokenness. And then uh, preach the gospel to yourself. I have a lot of gospel verses that I preach to myself all the time. One of the reasons why I memorize scripture is to preach the gospel to myself when I'm feeling like I'm facing something that's just insurmountable. And uh, uh, Psalm 23, 4 is one of those gospel uh, verses for me. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will do what? I will fear no evil. Why? Because he is with me. Yes! Yes! I love it. I love it. And you know the rest of it. And there's a lot of other things in there. But that just, that one section, that one section, just like, even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm not going to fear. Why? Because he is with me. See, this is what I love about Christianity. It's not a denial of reality. A lot of guys will preach a kind of a denial of reality. It's not skippity doo da skippity-day. I'm facing death. This is a tough situation. But God, you are bigger Than my situation. I'm facing my scenario. I I know what I'm I'm up against, and yet I know you're bigger. A whole lot of what I see happening with Bill over here. Right on, Bill. That is awesome. And Tamara, amazing. God's all over you. He's working in your life. He just got a diagnosis of, of cancer. And yet I see in the midst of that, there's no denial, but in the midst of that, God is bigger. He is bigger. Than whatever we ever face, see. And we and so and you guys are surrounded by a bunch of friends because you've nurtured the relationships for many years. So you got people rallying around you, loving you, supporting you. But both of you got your eyes on Jesus. We'll talk about that here too. But that's awesome. That's amazing. And so, um, how do you preach the gospel to yourself? Psalm uh, forty-two five is a great one. He's talking about how. Uh, how sad he is. And, whoa, my spirit, why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Why are you downcast? He's talking to himself and saying, why are you downcast? Put your hope in God. That's what he's saying to himself. He's working himself out. He's preaching the gospel to himself. Psalm 103 says, uh, Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is with him. He bless his holy name. And then it goes, It says it again. Why is that? He's talking to himself. One time around doesn't help. i got to say it again. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Come on, soul. Come on. Come on. Get up, soul. Why are you focused on that? Come on. God is bigger than this. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget none of his benefits. And then he begins to recite the benefits of God. And he begins to go through. This is how big God is. And this is how great God he is. And this is how desirable he is. And this is what he's going to do in my life. And now I know that I'm, I'm in good hands. He loves me. So, that, so that's what you get here in this scenario with Nehemiah. It's, it's amazing stuff. It's how I live my life. I, I could not make it without knowing that Jesus is with me and preaching the gospel to myself. There's so many other verses uh, John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. That's reality. But I've come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. You see, the here's reality. Here's a bigger reality. Uh, John 16.33, Jesus told his disciples, upper room discourse. He's about ready to hang on the cross for them. And he says, in this world you will have what? Trouble, tribulation. But take heart. I've overcome the world. So you see, the, the Bible's not about denying reality. It's about... It's about allowing God to enter into our reality with us. He is with us. He is for us. Oh my goodness. That is awesome. That is amazing. He shed his blood so that we could have him. He was a, he was forsaken on the cross so that we will never ever be forsaken. You might feel forsaken, you're not. You got to preach the gospel to yourself it's uh, when you preach the gospel to yourself I asked my wife what's one of her favorite verses and this is what she said Galatians 6 9 do not grow weary in well doing because in due season you will reap a harvest if you don't give up see that's, that, that's one of those gospel verses so what are the gospel verses that you use do you have a, kind of an arsenal of gospel verses that you pull out when you're struggling when you're working through issues man I do and if I don't I start digging into this to try to find something oh God help me help me help me and I'll tell you what he speaks to me he shows himself to me he's faithful his tender mercies are new every morning he won't let you down he'll take you all the way to the end and all the way home to be with him so he's taking care of our past he's with us in the present and we our future is secure that's the gospel that is so cool that's good stuff isn't it praise God praise God and so uh, preach the gospel to yourself I had a uh, Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, his daughter, I think it's his daughter, wrote this book. She's written some uh, kids' books. does really a great job. It's Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing. And she's quoting uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones here. She says, talk to yourself. Why are people usually unhappy? Martin Lloyd-Jones said it's because people are listening to themselves instead of talking to themselves. When you wake up in the morning, you can listen to whatever your thoughts are telling you. Maybe they are reminding you of something bad you did the day before. Maybe they are making you scared of something you have to do tomorrow. You can listen and feel horrible. Or you can talk back. You can remind yourself of what is true and who you are and who God is and what he has done. You can say something like this. Here's the verse. one of the verses that I had that was a good gospel verse. It's in that uh, chapter. Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God, Psalm 42, 11. Are you listening to yourself today or talking to yourself? Preach the gospel to yourself. Now, you might have heard me say this uh, before. Preach the gospel to yourself. And if you're still covetous, envious, anxious, whatever, it's not the gospel. It's just that you're a poor preacher. Okay, that's a bad, bad joke, but it's true. So you just got to get better At preaching, and the gospel provides a solution far surpassing any problem, the good news always outweighs the bad news. And so verses 19 through 20, we're almost finished here, let me uh, wrap this up here. So verses 19 through 20, but when Sanballat the Horonite, here's these troublemakers, here's these bullies, they're still there, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem, oh, they added to their number. The unholy trinity right here. Geshem the Arab heard of it. They jeered. They jeered. They jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that they are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Oh my goodness, that's powerful. So what is he doing? He's, he's dealing with the jeering. Here's the next thing. If you're going to stay motivated, here's what you need to do. You need to keep the enemy out of your head. Don't be intimidated by trash talk. You have an adversary that, first of all, this is what he does. He blinds the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. But he will lead astray your mind as a believer from your sincere and pure devotion to Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 11.3. So what you have to do is 2 Corinthians 10.3-5. you got to take captive every thought and bring it to the obedience of Jesus Christ. He is accuser. He will point out your successes to inflate you or, or your failures to deflate you, to cause you to feel kind of despair. He'll work one way or the other. He's a liar. He will try to get you to question God's commandments and God's character, that God doesn't have your best interest at heart. He'll throw the circumstances of your life in your face. He will he will come after you with these uh, lies and accusations. I know because personally I I get dogged regularly. He comes after us. Things like you shouldn't have said that. That was the dumbest thing in the world. Why these people don't love you? Just stay away from them and and all these accusations and these lies. And God doesn't have your best interest at heart. That's what these guys are doing to Nehemiah. They're jeering him. He goes back to the reality of who God is, going back to the reality of God's word. And he's a tempter. He will try to convince you that something in creation is more desirable and satisfying than the creator. And what's interesting, here's here's what he's trying to do. If I could summarize it and then we'll move on. We're going to end with a big song here this morning. Is that when you look at Jesus' temptation, did you know what Jesus' temptation in the fourth chapter of Matthew was preceded by? Chapter 3, where the Father, he's baptized and the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So the enemy comes into our life. By the way, those words are meant for us because we put our faith in Jesus Christ. So this is what should be bouncing around in your heart and mind regularly. The the Father is saying to you, you are my beloved Son, my daughter, in whom I am well pleased. Pleased. Because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you. And you can feast on that 24 7, but the enemy will try to get you off of that and to keep you from feasting on that as he did the Savior in the fourth chapter by getting him to preoccupy on positions and the possessions and the pleasures of life, thinking that somehow our identity is based on those things. No, it isn't. It's based on what the Father says about you. He adores you, He loves you, He thinks the world of you. You You're my beloved. Child in whom I am well pleased if you just took that and worked it deep within your heart you could face anything but see that's what the enemy he doesn't want you to know that he doesn't want you to believe that he's trying to get you off your game spiritually speaking and so you can't you got to keep the enemy out of your head you got to keep the enemy out of your head here's the last one keep your eyes focused on God Nehemiah never took his eyes off of God. While alone, in verse 12, he said, what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem, while before his own, his people, verse 18, the gracious hand of my God was upon me. While before his enemy, verse 20, the God of heaven will give us success. There's a a couple interesting stories. I'm going to invite our band up. They're going to lead us in this final song. Our band, come on up. Thanks. There's great stories. That one of my favorite stories, and I've got it marked out there. It's uh, Matthew 14:22 through 33, and that's where uh, Jesus is hanging back. He tells his disciples to get in a boat, so they hop on the boat and they're heading across the the lake, and they're fighting the wind. It's a hard, it's a hard roll. You know, it's just they're getting beat, and Jesus all of a sudden decides to come out to them. So he's walking on the water. And they freak. And he says, hey, it's me. And then Peter says, hey, if it's you, then let me come out to you. And he says, okay, yeah, come on, Peter. And so you guys know the story? What does Peter do? He, he gets out of the boat and walks on If you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. God challenges us to do things that maybe we're not so comfortable doing. And so, man, you want to see some miraculous things? You want to see God do a work in your life and then through your life to touch other people's lives, to bring, to bring healing to our brokenness? You got to get out of the boat. Got to make a commitment. You got to go for Jesus. You got to look to him. You got to do those things that would keep your heart, your spiritual fervor serving him. But when you get out of the boat and you begin to walk on water, please, please keep your eyes on Jesus. Because what happened to Peter? He began to look at the wind and the waves. What did he do? He went down. But guess who was there to pick him back up? Immediately it says In fact, this is what it says it's, 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 it's pretty amazing It says this And when Peter saw the wind He was afraid And beginning to sink He cried out And Jesus immediately reached out His hand To took hold of him And took hold of him He grabbed him up And pulled him back up You may be feeling like you're going down He's here this morning To pull you back up Keep your eyes on him Keep your eyes fixed on him Stand with us as we sing this song Keep your eyes on him. This is about keeping your eyes on him. So so how how do we stir up that appetite for God within us? We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. So keep your eyes on his love. My love for God will grow out of an experience of God's love for me. So may that happen in this song right now in Jesus' name.